everything is based on data and, and computer systems, basically. In that sense, we are vulnerable as a society, we are vulnerable as a people, we are vulnerable as individuals and as an economy. And we have to take action, every one of us, to make sure we know the risks and we manage those risks as good as we can. In this episode, I'm talking with ETH Zurich alumna and cybersecurity expert Maya Bunt, who was an executive at the reinsurance group Swiss Re for 20 years and is now a member of the board of several organizations, including CyberPeace. This is the We Are ETH podcast, and I'm Susan Kish, your host. So Maya, help me connect the dots here. You got a diploma in geoecology in Beirut at the University of Beirut in Germany. Then you did postgrad in applied statistics at the ETH Zurich. And then you did a doctorate in environmental science. But now you're a cybersecurity expert, having worked in reinsurance for a long time. So talk us through how this path weren't and how did you actually start off in geoecology? Yeah, thanks for having me, Susan. And um, I think the words you are looking for is life. Life happens. And then you set out to be a uh, environmental scientist and then you end up being a cyber expert. So um, <laughs> it's been a journey, colorful mm-hmm. journey. There is no step that I, you know, would do otherwise. So um, it was a, it was a good journey for me. Yeah, I started um, studying geoecology in Bayreuth. That's a small town in northeastern Bavaria. They have um, a small but very good university there. And the program that I was studying was uh, quite exclusive at that time. There were only, I think, three universities in Germany overall where you could study um, geoecology. It's quite similar, actually, but a little bit different from um, environmental science at the ETH. What is the difference? I think they just have different courses in the beginning, and you can then major in uh, slightly different um, areas. So what I did after, um, you know, the first two years of general studies, Mm -hmm. where you do all the math and physics and chemistry and all the practicals in Bayreuth at that time, I have no idea whether that changed by now. You could uh, specialize in different areas and I specialized in soil science. How did you get interested in soils? What was it about soils? I always wanted to study biology. Huh. And um, that was because uh, I had an awesome teacher in my gymnasium and in, in school. That makes a huge difference, doesn't it? It's incredible. I think that is actually one of the biggest, biggest things um, that a teacher can do is kind of inspire this passion of, of their pupils. And I had this mm-hmm. wonderful teacher, his name, uh, we called him Luachi, which is, is a you know, nice name for a little lizard. <laughs> How affectionate. <laughs> no, it's, it's true. And he, you know, <laughs> brought back stories from his travels in Madagascar at that time where, where you know, nobody ever traveled to Madagascar. And um, he was really an inspiring teacher. So I, I set out, mm-hmm. I wanted to study um, biology and then did a little university tour in Germany to see which university had, the, you know, the programs that mm-hmm. um, were fitting to me. And while I did that, I stumbled while visiting Bayreuth, I stumbled across Geoecology, so geoecology. And I thought, well, that's it. Is that where geography intersects with ecology or what is geoecology? It's all the life and geosciences together. So 
actually in the um, pre-diploma at that time, um, mm -hmm. we ha still had the diploma studies. So the first two years, um, as I said, you do math and um, statistics. And I did a little bit of programming as well. Also um, chemistry we had with the chemists and um, math and uh, physics um, and everything. So um, you go through all of that. And then um, you also have, um, you know, the the interesting stuff then that, uh, you know, kind of uh, <laughs> into the thick of things like soil science or um, hydrology. What's hydrology? Hydrology is a science of, of the water. And, um, you know, huh. the university at that time was, you know, doing a lot of experiments of uh, small, you know, small streams and and how they've uh, oh, flowed wow. and, you know, what kind of lives in their water quality, etc. Geology, we did a lot of really cool excursions, going mm -hmm. out even by bike, uh, driving around Bayreuth and looking at geological formations or in, in the soil science part, then digging holes in the ground and you know, looking at the soil profiles and lots of practicals. And I have memories of summer sitting in a in a field and looking and counting um, basically plants and seeing what's there. So how did you go from Barut, which is in Germany, to the ETH Zurich? And why did you pick statistics? Because I got to tell you, that is not usually in the fun category. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I just to, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I have to, I think I have to put something right. So I did that um, statistics course, but it, uh, I did it while doing my PhD in um, environmental science and soil science at the ETH. Ah, so you did your PhD at the ETH. Exactly. And I knew Got I had it. to employ statistics in my field work. So I thought, you know, right. this, this one or two courses that I, I took, that was a long time ago. And I thought I better, you know, brush up my statistics knowledge. And that was actually was a good idea because at that time I had my own, you know, field experiments. And all of a sudden statistics mm -hmm. makes made sense. Before that, it was kind of a, I don't know, a concept. That Abstract really concept. Didn't, yeah. Didn't stick with me so much. <laughs> I could learn it and I could write, you know, I, I could pass the um, the tests. But it didn't, you know, it didn't talk to me. But when you are designing your own field experiments and then you are looking at, you know, the concepts and you you think this through in that context, it's a completely different story. So that would be my shout out to every student who is despairing on statistics. <laughs> Wait until you have, you know, a practical work in front of you and em employ it. And then it's a it's a completely different thing. So this was in the 90s? That was um, in 1996, I think it was it's a long time ago. It's not that long, but I understand. And then I um, found a project which was um, just starting at that point in time at the WSL, the Eidgenössische Forschungsanstalt für Wald, Schnee und Landschaft. That's the Swiss Federal Institute for Forest, Snow and Landscape Research. And it belongs to the ETH, but it's, it's not um, the kind of... Uh, the uh, the university itself, but it's a separate institute. So they they actually they don't do any courses or anything. But as a PhD student, you can be there, but you have to find a professor at the ETH mm -hmm. to take you on. So that was my my big big thing, and I remember that that was uh, quite funny. So I found a space there, you know, somebody who would take me on with my you know 
mm-hmm. brand research ideas, which I thought <laughs> were perfectly suited for this, you know, for this new pr- large project was that was starting then. And um, I found somebody who would, you know, give me a, a contract. So that was all set. But then I still had to convince a professor at the ETH to kind of take me on as a PhD student. And how did you do that? Yeah, I took my research proposal and I had a, you know, had mm-hmm. like a, it was like an interview. And he sat there in front of me and I think he brought a couple of his students as well. So they could, you know, challenge mm-hmm. me from all sides. It was interesting. I think, you know, I came with all these ideas. And I, the good thing was the research that I proposed was a continuation and and further a deep dive of some research that I had done in my diploma thesis. So I had done already some work ah. and, and, you know, I was already right. into the thick of things and I was, you know, quite solid in terms of, you know, what I knew already. So um, and, and, and how mm-hmm. I wanted to apply that to this new field, right? Oh, my goodness. It was um, at that time, this institute was in an industrial complex in Schlieren, which is kind of on the outskirts of Zurich. Nobody wanted to go there. So I I went there and he was sitting there in front of me. And then he just looked at me and said, "Okay, well, it's all good. But please now here is a piece of paper. Write down the two most important graphs, basically the results of your research. Write them down right now. And I went, holy cow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds like he was forcing you to sort of step back from the details and and really tell you what your goal was. He wanted to see if I had a hypothesis, a scientific hypothesis. And um, I actually, I think I did, but not so clearly, right? So he he really kind right. of um, pushed me to to view that in a different way, and uh, and that stayed with me. Honestly, it stayed with me. Very very cool. So you did this work. That research typically takes several years. Did you move to Schlieren or you stayed in Zurich? Well, I moved to Zurich um, for for that then Mm -hmm. um, and I stayed in Zurich. And and yes, it took me, I think I did one year or one year and a half of very intensive field experiments. And that was fun Mm -hmm. too because I had this huge idea and everybody was laughing at me and obviously I couldn't do it on my own. So I uh, bribed everybody and their grandmother to come with me to the forest (laughs) and um, help out. And um, what I did is every field day, I baked, you know, a huge cake and brought um, cans of coffee (laughs) and tea and whatnot. And I think, yeah, people were quite happy to, you know, come out um, once in a while for a day in the forest with me and take soil samples and, you know, be part of this quite amazing, I must say, sorry, it's um, it's not very Swiss here, but um, quite amazing experiment that we did then. How do you actually take a soil sample? What does that mean? You just sort of take a trowel and dig in the ground or what does that mean? Since I wanted to um, to show how kind of solutes in, in water, how they flow through the soil, whether they flow through the so- forest soil everywhere the same or whether they are, you know, some preferential flow path where more of the solutes go through, etc. And whether what kind of impact mm-hmm. that has on the chemical environment then. So what we did is f- to, to be able to visualize that, right, we had um, a sprinkler and we colored water um, with some food color, blue food color. And then we sprinkled it onto a, a square meter, basically, of the forest soil. And then we dug a really, really big hole. 
So you had a had a nice profile, like a wall, and then you could actually see where the blue color had flowed through. And so that was obviously stained blue. And the rest, which was still, you know, all brown, didn't get any of the rain, so to speak. In the different um, layers, you could take um, samples from the blue part um, of the soil and from mm -hmm. the brown part of the soil. And then you would uh, take samples into, you know, little plastic bags, um, which obviously you right. had to label very, very carefully because that was, you know, super important, which experiment, which day and um, which depths and, uh, and so on. So we all did that. And then you would take the soil samples back to the uh, laboratory. I have, you know, pictures with hundreds and hundreds of bottles. And the nice thing was, since... This experiment was quite special and the, the, the samples itself were kind of unique. A lot of people wanted to work with me. So I had, it was great. I could work with you know, other people who were interested in not the, the chemical analysis I did myself. But then there were people who would do biological analysis on microorganisms on those samples. And I had a colleague who would do um, radio radio uh, measurements. Oh, for radioactivity? Yeah. And that was so cool because oh, wow. um, I had these samples and, you know, then we just wrote papers together. And that was, um, that was cool. That was really good. So you finished your PhD and then what, BCG said, here's a smart young lady, I'm going to hire her? Or how did you start off? How did you switch into management consulting? I finished my PhD. I, you know, did everything. And then I uh, did go into management consulting. And the reason for that was I, I thought I had spent now basically all my life in school and at university and I loved it. It was great. But I thought um, if I want to continue, then it's very kind of very confined to first of all that path. The other thought that I had is if I continue with this, I'm very confined in my life choices. You didn't have many options, right? There's only very few universities and very few open positions in my field. It's a very, very specialized field, right? And I thought, okay, right. do I want to kind of live my life in a way that I absolutely have to go no matter what, um, if, if there's an open position and I can have it, I have to move there. And I thought maybe there are other things out there and I would like to explore a little bit more, right? And this is why I then looked around and, and management consulting seemed like a good opportunity at that time to get into different industries, learn. Learn about business, learn about other parts of the world. So um, that was that was my thinking at that point in time. It worked out pretty well, I would say. And then talk us through, how did you go from management consulting to, did you go after that directly to Swiss Re? Yeah, that was, again, was an, kind of an easy transition because at some point, and I knew that when I was starting that I, you know, probably wouldn't, you know, grow old and gray hairs in management consulting it was a great time, wouldn't miss it. But I knew that that was probably only a, you know, an interim step for me. And um, I started looking to what would be my next step. And then Swissry actually came with an offer. I had, you know, done some work for Swissry while at BCG. So they knew me. That was for me was an was an easy move because I I just loved working at Swissry and with the Swissry people. So um, that was uh, I felt um, at home there. They had a you know very nice corporate culture that kind of I I responded to, and um, they had an interesting interesting offer for me. So I. 
I jumped. And at Swissery, what did you do and how did you... How, how did the interest in cybersecurity arise? Oh, that took a little bit, right? So I started off in, <laughs> in I always say, and, and I hope nobody ever listens to this podcast because I probably will be crucified for that. But um, I started <laughs> off in um, technical accounting and claims, and that is in, in reinsurance at that point in time, I must say, right? It's, um, it's now it's, I hope it's different. I think it's different. But at that time, it was like, you always have this, this view of the dish cleaner in a restaurant, right? And then make their way up, right? I started in at the end of the reinsurance chain, which is where then all the accounts are being managed and the claims settled. That sounds weird, but it was an interesting time because what you do is you understand the business. At a very fundamental level. Yeah. yeah. And and that helped me a lot later on. I'm sure. So it was, was really cool. And I also, you know, were able to have my first team, um, my first line management um, experience, mm-hmm. had a great boss, uh, great bosses, I must say. Um, so I learned um, a lot and um, no, it was a good time. And it sounds like during the 20 years, you just kept on getting interesting jobs every two or three years. Yeah, not every two or three years, but I, I moved quite a lot. And I think what is maybe a bit um, unusual is I kind of jumped across lines. So from from technical accounting and claims, I went into uh, basically operations and then into IT um, completely different different um, area. Um, from there, I went into group strategy, again, completely different area, and then into reinsurance. Um, and here now you hear a little bit um, also how I end, ended up as a cyber expert. Um, and that I would say probably started when I was working in, in IT, um, uh, where for a very short time, I also had in, in my area of responsibility, the um, cybersecurity team. But even after that was gone, that was always a big topic in, in IT. And, um, and I, I kind of took that and, you know, what, whatever I had learned and started to love in terms of technology and, and understanding also the risks of that. When I then uh, went and and worked in group strategy, that topic just, you know, was sitting there and, and was basically shouting at me, here I am, I need somebody to, you know, help me develop. And, you know, I just said, okay, well, maybe that's me. But this was cybersecurity from the perspective of underwriting the risk of others or cybersecurity in terms of protecting Swiss Re? No, that was cybersecurity in terms of cyber insurance. And that was, you know, that was at a time where there wasn't a lot there. This is what years? 2000s? Well, well, no, that was 2014, maybe. So there was a cyber insurance market, but it was really, really small. Really, really small. Right, right, and, right. Um, and the demand was probably huge. no. There was no demand. Really? Yeah, yeah. People weren't interested in being insured against it? Nope. Most people didn't know. So they self-effectively self-insured? Yes, absolutely. Wow. Probably thought they they were already insured, but they weren't. You know, um, no, that was was at a time where um, actually the insurance industry's biggest kind of biggest growth inhibitor was that uh, people didn't take cyber risks very seriously. 
you cannot imagine it today because it's it's everywhere and, <laughs> it's and it's a, it's right. a, but it's, it's honestly that that was the biggest thing was you know how do we get awareness into the market and yes there were a few um, companies that were um, insured uh, mainly the the big um, large corporates and um, that was where where the market started but the market was tiny. And um, also very few insurers were actually offering cyber insurance at that time. So it was really, um, yeah, at a start. And nobody understood it. I mean, honestly, we didn't understand it. We didn't have processes. We didn't, you know, that was, you know, we, we developed that over over time. Also all the models to to model the risk, et cetera. So that all came then, you know, during that time. And that was what was so fascinating to me. To make sure we're on the same wavelength, what, how would you define cybersecurity? Right now in the days of internets of things and a gazillion devices, what is it exactly? So cybersecurity, you, you have this triumvirate of confidentiality, integrity, and availability. Whatever you do and you make sure you safeguard your um, confidentiality, your integrity, and your availability of data and systems. So you can, you know, you can work, you can um, do your normal operations, etc. You safeguard the people behind those um, data, if, if this is, for example, uh, personally identifiable information, then that is cybersecurity. In terms of insurance, as I said, that that started early. The first cyber insurance um, products probably came in 2000 with a year 2K, a bug and scare. Oh, right. Um, yeah. So yeah. Um, that is when, you know, first products came on the market. That was, a, as I said, very small market. Then that developed towards different areas. One big booster was then the um, kind of data privacy infringement covers in the US mm -hmm. when all of a sudden... There's big hacks. And then um, there was a lot of risk of, obviously, of legal risks, etc. In, in connection with that. That was a big driver. So the US market largely developed uh, based on these um, data privacy infringement covers, whereas in the rest of the world, mainly Europe, um, first, there was probably a little bit more focus on um, business interruption covers. Now that has all come together and, um, you know, it's it's basically same uh, demands and, and needs everywhere, except obviously in jurisdictions where you don't have very strong data privacy laws there. The need for, for strong data privacy covers is not as big as um, in other markets. How big is the cybersecurity insurance and reinsurance market today then? If you describe it as very small, as recent as 2014. I'm out of the market now, um, you know, for a year or almost a year. So I probably don't have the latest numbers, but I guess it's it's around 14, 15 billion US dollars uh, globally. So what today, especially after ChatGPT exploded and the increased interest in areas around artificial intelligence, and seeing all the military applications of this in the war in Ukraine, what do you see as the biggest threats that we should be cyber aware of in 23? Yeah, so I think you, you kind of uh, came out with two good ones, right? So I think um, if we are talking about how our lives 
and our thinking is driven and, and supported by media, by search engines, by artificial intelligence, whatever, I think that is one really big area of, of risk. And there are several risks associated to it, right? Um, you can have the, the wrong training sets, you can have not the right governance around it, you can have all kinds of things. But I think that is something that has a has a really broad societal impact. And, and we see that um, everywhere, right, is the um, kind of ability to influence large groups of people. Um, I think that is, is, a, is a huge risk associated with that. So I think we absolutely need to kind of find the right way to govern these models, um, but also to, to make sure the education on how to use digital means, uh, use support functions, that is um, super important for, for everybody, for just everybody. It should not be, you know, kind of only taught in university, not only at the ETH level, right? But that is something that, you know, you should start, you know, having having kids in, in, in kindergarten already, you know, understand and, and um, critically think about what it is. And obviously, you can't go too far there, but you can, you know, start with the, with the basics, right? So I think that is a big story. Um, in terms of a state or state-sponsored aggression in cyberspace, there has been a, a, a problem for for years now. It's only gotten, I think, bigger over the years. Having said that, the, the, the biggest surprise, I think, of the Ukraine conflict was that not more really, you know, rather devastating cyber events have happened based on that yet. doesn't say that it's not coming, but that is something that, you know, I think um, a lot of cyber people in the um, industry have been, you know, surprised about. Um, it sure looks like a World War II battle. It does not necessarily look like a our century battle. But but um, that doesn't mean that we can relax. <laughs> Absolutely not. And nope. um, right, right, in right. a way that all our kind of lives, our critical infrastructure, our our economy is um, is digitally supported. I mean, everything is based on data and and computer systems. Basically, this trend is just you know is is, is getting stronger and stronger. In that sense, we are vulnerable as a society, we are vulnerable as a people, we are vulnerable as individuals and as an economy. And I think this is something that needs to be taken into account. We, we have to be very aware of that fact and we have to take action, every one of us, to make sure we, we know the risks, at least you know as good as, as we can, and we manage those risks as good as we can. So it sounds like... Cyber awareness, for lack of a better term, at the individual level, at the institutional level, whether that's governments or businesses or other kinds of institutions. Cities, communities, any institution, anybody is important. And, um, but it doesn't stop, obviously, with awareness. Awareness is important, but it doesn't stop there. Got it. So having left Swiss Re a year ago, mm -hmm. what are you up to now? What is Maya's next step? So um, I'm already in the middle of my next step. So um, I'm now what um, I call a portfolio director. So I have a portfolio of, of engagements, of mandates. Some are companies where I sit on the supervisory board. The others are 
actually most are cyber engagements. Um, for example, these are, you know, voluntary, like um, I think you, in your introduction, you mentioned that I'm also on the board of the um, Cyber Peace Institute, and I'm also on the board of um, the Swiss Risk Association, and I'm chairing the Cyber Resilience chapter there. And this is where I kind of also engage myself. It's a lot of fun as well. I stay close to the, the topic that has been so important to me. Um, I'm also participating in the um, Geneva Dialogue, which is you know, an in international dialogue sponsored by Switzerland to um, also promote and find find ways basically for cyber peace on a, on a larger level. So it's um, it's all kinds of things that keep me busy and on my feet um, every day. It sounds like you have a good diversified portfolio, as uh, the bankers would say. How did your years at ETH prepare you for what you did at the Swiss Re and, and what you're doing now and the work you're doing in cybersecurity? Hmm. That is a very good question. So first of all, the ETH gave me a lot of opportunities to kind of just test out things. I don't know how it's nowadays, but when I did my PhD, I did not have to take any courses, right? So the statistics um, was purely because I thought it was interesting and I needed it. I think the only thing that you needed for that was a lot of curiosity and the, the will to, you know, just do that in your in your spare time and on top of everything else. But if you had that, you could do um, awesome things and, you know, experience often awesome things. So that was, was great. Um, I kept that. I think what I honestly learned in my studies of environmental science is to kind of think in, in systems and how different things influence others and how that then, you know, kind of leads to, you know, effects that you might or might not have foreseen. So that's definitely important. What makes ETH special for you? You see, that is a good question. I don't, I don't know actually why that is, but I can tell you it is. <laughs> also, um, in terms of this podcast and um, other events, if ETH is asking, I'm very happy to give my time and you know support both the institution, but also other other students and graduates. So, for example, I'm also mentoring excellent, you know, bright young woman from the ETH right now. It's things like that that I keep close, but I think as an institution, it, 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 it really inspires this feeling of we are also a family and, and we're here and you can still also look to us and, you know, keep in contact and continue to learn. I love that. So I'm going to ask some closing questions. What is your favorite place in Zurich? Or at the ETH, where is it you'd like to go? Who I love the Arboretum in front of Swiss Re and the lake. So that is in spring. Oh, you yeah. have the spring flowers and the swimming is awesome. And it's just, this is where, where Zurich is. Maya, thank you so much. That was a great conversation. And thank you for sharing your stories. That was wonderful. I'm Susan Kish, host of the We Are ETH series, telling the story of the alumni and friends of the ETH Zurich, the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich. ETH regularly ranks amongst the top universities in the world with cutting-edge research, science, and people. The people who were there, the people who are there, and the people who will be there. Please subscribe to this podcast and join us wherever you listen. And give us a good rating on Spotify or Apple if you enjoyed today's conversation. I'd like to thank 
our producers at ETH Circle and LA Media. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us. Thank you.